Hello everyone, it is me, Jeremy, and we're back at my podcast, Penny Tolerable, and with me is uh, Dave Gibbons, Watchman artist and Quadrophenia enthusiast, <laughs> quite a get for this episode. Yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah, right. I think I'm still alive. No, I am. <laughs> uh, no, it's me, Nathaniel. I'm Jeremy's brother, sitting in uh, yet again because I had fun. Discussing our uh, topic in our previous episode, Alan Moore, which it's my understanding I've been tempted back to do that for a second round. Yes, and we will uh, we will actually be doing a third round. Oh, we will. We will, but it will be uh, slightly unpleasant because of the nature. It w- uh, well, I'll surprise you guys. Okay. Next month, you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, this is what I'm thinking of. Uh, uh, you'll be back. <laughs> yeah, I'll be. <laughs> What's this weed business? You're pregnant, or you got a mouse in your pocket? <laughs> a little from column A, a little from column B. Okay. Half a mouse. I cut it too hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, what do we do on this podcast, Jeremy? Uh, we talk about stuff. It's uh, generally a your standard nerd pop culture podcast and that's how I'm selling it at least you're selling this? oh I'm advertising on SoundCloud oh not bad okay yeah uh we're talking about Alan Moore we are going to be discussing his work from about the time that uh his relationship with DC soured to the present day okay um, first off, I would like to talk about From Hell. Alrighty. Now, uh, I have actually... From Hell is kind of a tank. Like, it's an intimidating-looking book when you see it. It's a Cerebus-style phone book. Yes, there, there are going to be several of these that we're going to be talking about that I actually have not read. A lot of them I have, but some of them I have not. Yeah. Is that why I was called in for this? Yes, actually. How would you describe... Well, not how would you describe From Hell, because uh, From Hell is, if people don't know, it's a narrative about Jack the Ripper and uh, just the Victorian times in general. So, if you could tell us a bit about it. Oh, uh, in a nutshell, From Hell is the uh, best comic book ever written. (laughs) <laughs> and I mean that sincerely. There's ones that I think are uh, you know, more fun or uh, are dear to my heart, but on any sort of technical level, it's uh, compared to whatever you want, The Godfather, Citizen Kane, Wild Strawberries. <laughs> like I feel like From Hell is as good as or better than anything that's ever been done in the medium. And yeah, fundamentally it is a... Jack the Ripper story, which uh, these days is you know fading a little bit further into the past. Not that we ever forget about Jack the Ripper, but when Moore began it, it was actually the uh, meant to vaguely tie in with the uh, centenary of the uh, Whitechapel murders. And Moore himself said that he was totally uninterested in just telling a murder story, especially one where you know the details had not really been known. So. He said he did not want to write a whodunit, he wanted to write a what happened, 
which uh, he pronounces it eloquently. I like to think of it as a wahafa. <laughs> and in this case, he pulls a little bit of his, uh, I don't want to ascribe Asperger's or anything to him, but you know Moore has that sort of beautiful mind approach where he just sees the connections mm-hmm. in everything. He's the guy who realizes, like, oh, wait, if this character in League was this age, they could have met this character at this point. Yes. So he does that with real people in From Hell, and he realizes that if you were writing about England during the Whitechapel murders, that means that you could write about not just Jack the Ripper, but also the Elephant Man and Oscar Wilde. Tie it into this, uh, like, fin de siècle, uh period in history and he admits to fudging the the math by about six months but one of the most horrific sequences in the book features the conception of adolf hitler which he it's cheating just a little but hitler was his uh conception is about six months away from this weird possibly ritualistic killing and so Moore takes the tact that uh the Jack the Ripper murders, the Whitechapel murders, were enacted by the Queen's royal physician, Dr. William Whitney Goal, uh, Whitney Goal, which neither he nor the artist Eddie Campbell believe. They've got on record. Campbell says he doesn't think it was Goal. Uh, Alan Moore has said that he basically doesn't care. They were not going for something authentic, and it is kind of an outlandish theory in some ways. They are going for the most interesting theory. Mm-hmm. And because Goal was a Freemason, uh, Moore takes that as a cue to then bring in Masonic mysticism and this kind of uh, psychogeography, this Jack Hawksmore approach to describing cities, which he becomes more and more obsessed with in his later works. And the result is that Goal's killing of these poor prostitutes is meant to be a ritual invocation, which essentially gives birth to the 20th century. And if all this sounds like a heady brew, it is. I read this book the first time around uh, almost 20 years ago, my goodness. I read it, liked it, barely understood it. A couple years later, I went back, read it a second time, and went, oh, this is the best thing ever. (laughs) And uh, I don't know, we could do a pod, like we could do a chapter by chapter series on From Hell. Um, It does not have the utter crystalline clockwork perfection of structure that you see in Watchmen, but I think, uh, leaving out that structuralism, I think it's, frankly, an even better work, like even more mature, developed, and philosophical. So, I'm sorry if this sounds like pompous or anything, I'll, I'll move on now, but I just think it's an incredible work, and I think it's a crowning achievement, and a bibliography that is not really hurting for masterpieces. Mm-hmm. There's a. Uh, I've only heard several actual lines from it. The. Uh, the. I've heard the. Uh, Elephant Man part, where, the physician says, you know, it's a, it's a damn shame you weren't born in uh, India. They, worship elephants as gods and. Well, know. he compares them to uh, Ganesha. Yeah. And he says, uh, uh, I don't want to quote the whole thing, but yeah, when Gaul is called in to examine the uh, the elephant man, just, just because they were both celebrities of a sort at the time, he greets him and he says, uh, my dear Mr. Merrick, I do believe you are the most hideously deformed individual that I've ever seen. 
the elephant man laughs it off and says, most people try and pretend I look normal. Your honesty is refreshing. And Gull, you know, they talk for a minute. Uh, Gull tells him about uh, Ganesha, the elephant-headed god in uh, India. And the same way that, for instance, a child born these days uh, with, say, multiple limbs is worshipped as a god in some regions, uh, Gull suggests, uh, well, if you had been born in India, they might have thought you the reincarnation of Ganesha. And after he leaves the room, Merrick is clearly sort of taken with this. And when Gull sets about the first murder, Ganesha is a god that is meant to be paid reference to when undertaking a, you know, a, a great uh, project for the first time. So before he sets out in his carriage, he stops by and watches the elephant man uh, going for his walk. And it's meant to be his, tips his hat to uh, Ganesha and then begins his great and bloody work. Mm-hmm. Anyways, zip my lip now. There's also a, there's a line that is quite uh, effective and quite interesting that I uh, have heard. And is, I believe the line is something to the effect of uh, the, the one place where God's... Uh, truly exists is in our mind there they exist there they flourish in all of their uh, beauty and horror it's something uh, I'm getting it wrong it's more eloquent than that but it's it's a very great line you know you know showing there are a lot of authors who have examined the nature of gods and uh, show that these Creatures, if they did exist, would be quite hellish, and that's just a nice line to back that up. Although I'm getting slightly off the point. Um, we will move on to Lost Girls, which is uh, the uh, pornographic narrative he did with um, Linda Gebby, who became his wife. They met. On this project, he had he had formerly been uh, married and had two children, two daughters, Amber and Leia, and uh, he'd been a part of a thruple, I believe. Yes, a thruple. Uh, what what people call an experimental relationship involving him and two women, uh, his wife and another woman, and supposedly his wife just took a liking to the other woman and ran off and took the kids with him. And you you would think that this would cause uh, a, 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 like a growing misogynistic sense in Alan, but it did not cause that. Yeah, I that's worth noting. I never even thought of that, but when you realize that Dave Sim basically uh, spent 12 years writing about, uh, you know, the failings of women because his girlfriend broke up with him. And then you have Alan Moore having his wife and his, you know, backup wife run off together. And as much as he's, you know, some of his works are accused of uh, being misogynistic. We don't have to get into that, perhaps. But, I mean, by all accounts, the guy himself is a perfect gentleman. Um... The fact that he did not turn into, like, 
Cerebus Plus because of this it is actually kind of incredible. Like, his reaction seems to have largely been, oh, well, easily come, easily go. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know any of the parties involved, but I've heard that it was largely amicable. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. just something he tried and did not seem to uh, pan out. And uh, you mentioned uh, Amber and Leia. The, I believe the dollars were named because uh, Amber, in reference to Roger Zelazny's Amber, and then Leia because Alan Moore is a professed uh, Star Wars super fan, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah. You know, a lot of people complain about the prequels, but if you go back to them, they hold up. <laughs> Your impression just gets better and better know, every just, time. I know. What, what is it now, Ringo with a head cold? <laughs> you know, Liverpool and Northampton. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, as I was saying, uh, Lost Girls, which uh, I am ashamed to say I have, but have not gone around to reading. People tell me it's an absolutely beautiful book. Um, he when when he created this, he called he himself called it a pornographic narrative, and people said, "Oh, you're writing, you know, an erotic fiction." And he made great pains to point out it is not erotica; it is pornography. I'm trying to see if I can write porn with a story. Yeah, and it's the equivalent, and God bless Alan and other people like Neil Gaiman for doing this, but it's like when people go, oh, you write graphic novels. And he goes, no, I write comics. <laughs> like, Alan is clearly much more comfortable with everything being a little bit seedy, a little bit punk, and when you place it on a pedestal, like his... I think there's sort of a knee-jerk disgust he has for that. So, yeah, he has been unapologetic. It's not erotica, it's pornography. And speaking of Neil Gaiman, he had my favorite review of Lost Girls, where he praised the art, writing, conception, and production values to the high heavens. But his uh, summation, he said, uh, it's one failing is that it's not very good as a one-handed read. There's not much here I can actually make any use of. <laughs> that is a very Neil thing to say. Yeah. And, uh... That's so Neil. If you have... If a person has not read Lost Girls or heard about it, um... It is basically the erotic meeting... I'm using erotic, it's pornographic. Is the meeting of, uh... Three... Girls in uh, fiction and ch children's fiction, they are mostly of age. Uh, it is Alice Liddell from Alice in Wonderland, Wendy Gale from Peter Pan, and uh, no, no, Wendy Darling from Peter Pan, and Dorothy Gale from The Wizard of Oz mm -hmm. books. And it examines their. Uh, sexual relationship with each other, you know, uh, Alice is, Alice Liddell is very posh because she comes from a very rich family and Dorothy does not. Yeah. Well, it's a nice little, uh, use of contrast because, uh, uh, Moore has always been excellent as a collaborator. 
this is why uh, you know whatever like reviewers and fans and critics and whomever might think of him he tends to be well liked by everyone he's worked with so far as I can tell um, and he tends to take the approach of you tell me what you want to draw and we'll go from there and uh, Melinda Gebby like, like it's very much an equal partnership here uh, she had said that for whatever reason she liked doing uh, trios of women she didn't know why, but it, w it was just like a dynamic that she thought was really interesting. So as you mentioned, Jeremy, it's, it's meant to be contrast. You have uh, two English women and one American. You have two working class people and one upper class person. And Dorothy is an ingenue, uh, just like this young filly. Um, Wendy is a more reserved uh, married woman of what would then be middle age, you know, probably not even mid twenties in this case. And then Alice is an older woman, like a mature woman. Uh, thus keeping in like for some reason Alan is fastidious about what would their ages actually be if they were to correspond. Mm -hmm. And so the result is Alice is the oldest of the works, followed by uh you know, Victorian era Peter Pan, followed by exactly turn of the century L. Frank Baum was DeVos. And it's, uh, first and foremost, it is pornographic, but it's also his book about World War One, which, uh, if you go back to World War One, it's the one we forget about because, you know, much like The Dark Knight and Aliens, the sequel was bigger and better. Uh, <laughs> but World War One is, you know, among the saddest things in history. Uh, and this is Alan doing his version of, you know, the Magic Mountain for World War Two. Uh, he's doing it for uh, World War One, and the result is that in between all the pornography, there's this strain of kind of Wilfred Owen sadness and melancholy running through the whole thing. And I mean, again, aiming for like the big topics, it's like, okay, sex and death. What what else is there to write about besides that? Yeah, I, uh, I talked to a friend of mine. Uh, Brent, and he said, uh, he said the main idea of Lost Girls is that, uh, love should be the natural state of humanity, not war. Mm -hmm. Like, we are, we are our best at love, you know, not only are we, not only are we evil when we're at war, we're bad at war. Like, we're not even good at it. <laughs> yes. That's a nice way of putting it. Like, uh, yeah, no, no comment. I just... Half the time, it's not even... I guess it's better than being good at war, but most of the time, in addition to being murderous, it's kind of an embarrassment for a lot of people, too. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned... Uh, that you know, everyone who had read it uh, praised it to you. This, I think, like pound for pound, this is probably the most unread of Alan Moore's works, unless you count like Jerusalem, like the million word novel that mm. <laughs> most people don't want to crack open, understandably. Uh, Lost Girls, because it is an oddity, because it is an, an independent work. From Hell at least has that cloud of like, it's about murder, and there was a movie about it, and yeah. it won all these awards. 
Where's Lost Girls? It's like, no, you're going to be reading porn. Are you comfortable with that? And uh, I don't know what to say. Like, I totally understand if it's not for everybody and it's not something you're going to be, you know, reading on the subway or anything. But uh, if you actually take the time, whether or not, much like Neil Gaiman, whether or not it actually, you know, does what it's supposed to, so to speak, um, it, it is a very lovely work. It is one of his most sweet-natured works. Uh, it ventures to some places, but I would argue it's not really one of his darker works. Mm-hmm. It's lovelier, it's it's lighter in some ways, even when there's you know danger and perversity lurking around certain corners. And uh, I don't know, I also just think it's absolutely adorable that he and Melinda Gebby worked on it together. And got married not too long after and Moore said like if I recommend every couple write pornography together because it will really put you in touch with your spouse so like I say it's a work I could see people not caring about or caring for it's a hard one to uh, disparage I think mm-hmm. the uh I next move on to something interesting about Alan's life. His his personal life um, is that he is, in many senses of the word, uh, a magician. Like not not only does he practice uh, rituals. Um, much like, say, someone like Alejandro Hodorowski does with his, with Hodorowski's psycho magic, uh, which we might touch upon in a later episode. Psycho Crasher! Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who didn't know, uh, Nathaniel also does a Hodorowski impression. No, I do you doing Hodorowski. <laughs> um, yeah, but not only is it, uh, rituals. But he's he's also he also knows sleight of hand like legerdemain, which I think is very very uh, charming. He and Viggo Mortensen have wizard fights. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he has stated that um, how can I put this that words themselves are magic because. Um, in the universe, whatever transforms the universe itself is magic. That's literally the definition of magic, like the transformation of nature and the universe. So and the control of the physical world. In yeah. Some fashion. So um, words themselves are magic. Like literally, every word is a magic word. Like if you tell your girlfriend, "Oh, I love you so much," uh, that's magic because you're making her feel good. If you tell your girlfriend, if you get in a that fight, depends with, on what she thinks of you. Yeah, if you get in a fight with your girlfriend, that is also magic because you're upsetting her. Uh, you know, or, it, or boyfriend, or boyfriend. Yeah, yeah that's not. No, but yeah, the the very fact that we can have any sort of a representational language at all. Like if I come inside and I tell Jeremy, hey, I, 
I saw a coyote today. He knows what I'm talking about. I have just cast an illusion into his mind because he knows what those words mean and he can fill in the blanks and do things like that. And the same way that, you know, uh, primitive, uh, I don't want to say primitive cultures, it sounds like one's better than the other. When mankind was at a more primitive stage as a whole, um, the idea of uh, drawing things on cave walls was a form of representation, was a means of control. Mm-hmm. So recording anything, conceptualizing anything beyond like immediate animal emotions and reactions is in itself an incantation. Um, and at the same time, there is a death in the act of speaking. So who knows? Uh, what else do you want to say about uh, Moore's magic? I think we've covered oh, okay. all, I, all I can and all I know about it. Um, going back to his work, uh, after Lost Girls, uh, he decided to create a pastiche called, uh, 1963. Well, you're, it's jumping around just a little bit, this is where it gets awkward, because both From Hells and Lost Girls were begun, uh, ages ago, I think, like, late mm-hmm. 80s, early 90s. And then remained unfinished. From Hell gets wrapped up around uh, 98, 99. That's at least when the collected edition comes out. Lost Girls takes even longer than that, so it's tricky to talk about. It's like it begins before he starts 1963, but then it ends uh, probably in the last decade, I would say. Mm-hmm. So it outlives that. Um yeah, you talk about 1963, because uh, I don't like it, so I'll let you take point <laughs> on this one. 1963 is, sadly, another one I have not read. Uh, I'm not good at this. <laughs> no, um, it is one that I haven't read, I, but it's, it is, uh, its aim is a Jack Kirby pastiche, you know, uh, Jack Kirby... It, whether you like his uh, actual drawing style, like the way he physically draws people, it, his influence and his style is breathtaking. It's uh, some people have described it. Some people have put it under the uh, uh, subcategory of ray punk, which is if a person does not know that is uh, science fiction art that does not look like anything that we have seen, like, uh, say, Rene Leleu's Fantastic Planet would be Ray Punk. Uh, people have put that in the same category as Jack Kirby's work, you know, with the, the connecting dots that all, that are all over his character's costumes, like Black Bolt. Uh, wait, the superhero? What's his civilian name? Black Bolt's civilian name is, uh, I am not kidding, Blackagar Boltagon. Okay, we're thinking of the same guy then. Um, I've uh, I've uh, come around on Kirby. Since I was younger, I didn't quite get what the big deal was. And uh, there's still things that are like weird to me, like how characters' hands all have like square-tipped fingers that are all the same length. Or how every single person has, like, xylophone teeth. Um, 
when I actually get into his and, uh, just atrocious writer, like like you understand why they needed Stan Lee to like fill in those word balloons. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, his conceptual work, his design work, is just absolutely extraordinary and sui generis and to look at when he they just let him do whatever he wanted on new gods you understand like oh this i've always hated the like comics or a modern mythology reading kirby has the fun of reading the beowulf and gilgamesh and this old stuff it's 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 like seeing a frisetta painting it's just blood and thunder and cosmic malice right there in your face um so 1963 tries to recapture the Kirby Ditko era of Marvel, uh, hence the name. Uh, the Marvel, modern Marvel age starts, I think, Fantastic Four is 1961. Then Spidey is 62, and by 63 they have every character that you would care to think of is introduced by 1963. Um so there's a lot of overlap there. Instead of uh, he has like a Thor pastiche, so it's uh, Osiris or Horus or somebody like that, I believe. He has his version of the Fantastic Four. He has his version of Spidey, and uh, that's about it. <laughs> um, this maybe gets to something we can talk about a little later. But for as much as I like Alan, and as much as I think he's this incredible pastiche artist, somebody who can actually capture the the tone of almost anything. Like, if you treat writers as uh, like impersonators, then he's uh, Maurice Lamarche or somebody like. Yeah. He's incredible at capturing the writing styles of other people. For some reason, he is adoring of an era in comics that I think the period itself is good. But I think the endless refractions of it are of little interest. And uh, I'm not sure how else to put that. It's, it's like you watch cool old exploitation stuff like Mad Max and mm-hmm. Shaw Brothers. Yeah. And then you watch somebody talented do their impersonation of it like Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. And the result is that both of those things are cool. And I think that's because they are distinct. You have the original thing, you have the really good copy, and that's it. And I feel like with old school Silver Age superheroics, you have the original thing, and you have the Alan Moore type versions, which is good. But then in between, you have a million people doing bad impressions of Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. Yeah. So the result of like, hey, like I'm going to do a, a shitty, funny, weird make up version of Marvel Comics 30 years later. It's like, well, it doesn't matter because we spent the last 30 years doing that. Yeah. I, I don't need to see, like, like, whoa, a Spidey knockoff? Who would ever have dreamed of such a thing? So for me, uh, there's somebody out there who loves 1963, and I'm probably being overly dismissive of it, but when he gets into, like, when he gets into that, trying to recapture Fantastic Four or Superman or whatever... It's the one thing he does that just does nothing for me, I'm afraid. It's a matter of taste. Mm-hmm. Um, as you say, I'm, I'm jumping around a bit time-wise. Uh, it was around this time 
that he started working for Image Comics. Uh, he had had an he had said no forever to Marvel. He had said no forever to DC, and those were at the time those were the big two. If you didn't work for one of them, you didn't work. But you know whether you like image, whether you like early image or not, it was good that not is it <laughs> okay. It was good that it started because you know, I I'm not a fan of Spawn or Cyberforce or Wildcats. I think the stuff is pretty garbagey. Like but but it's just kind of neat that that's they paved the way for kind of a main it was being both mainstream and independent like you could write your own comics and own your own comics and you didn't have to bow out to you know the big two and I think that appealed to Alan uh he wrote several stories for uh believe it was Cyberforce and uh, Wildcats. Wildcats, I believe. Um, well, I have not read these because I have not cared to read these. I've, like I said, I'm not a Wildcats fan. This gets into something where uh, initially... Oh, I dropped my phone. Sorry. That's authentic. Leave it in. It makes us seem like people. <laughs> um... Yeah, the arrival of Image is this double-edged sword where, you know, Marvel and DC should not have this monopoly, duopoly, whatever, over uh, comics. And the idea that there was a third publisher uh, of this stature was important. And at the same time, as you mentioned, the books were almost uniformly awful. Like, I guess Savage Dragon was kind of fine. <laughs> Oh, no, I guess within a year they're doing the max, and that's just like a genuinely good comic. Yeah. So props to that. So yeah, I, I'm with Jeremy. I'm not a fan of uh, Young Blood or anything. Well, I'm almost glad it exists just for how stupid it is. Uh, but from there, you know, jump ahead thirty years almost, and Image is publishing uh, Wicked and Divine and Saga and Sex Criminals and Bitch Planet and. You know, all these other comics, which uh, some of those are better than others, perhaps, but they have the feel of an actual indie comic while at the same time having the aesthetics and circulation of a major comic. Like, Image these days mm -hmm. is what Vertigo was at its peak. Yeah. Which is good, because Vertigo isn't anything right now. Um, so there, it attracted a lot of talent. Chris Claremont, who essentially had to stop writing X-Men because of Jim Lee... <laughs> Then wound up almost joining them in Image before backing off of that. Uh, Dave Sim dropped in and then, you know, did an issue that they legally can't reprint and then jumped out again. And so Alan did end up writing. Uh, uh, the fact that you know, Mr. Alan, you know, Beard Wizard Watchman from Hell Moore, the fact that he has a work called Violator Badrock on his resume. <laughs> It's hilarious, and it's probably not even the worst thing he's ever written. <laughs> um, but yeah, he does. He does 
Bathrock and a little bit of Youngblood, Wildcats, which believe it or not, after Swamp Thing was only his second ongoing comic. It's kind of nuts when you think about it. And they, I mean, it's considered to be like the best Wildcats run. So he deserves some credit for that. Um, these are the ones where even I will admit I haven't quite followed him. Like, I will dig into some weird stuff. I'll find, like, you know, like charity booklets he wrote for Relief Aid in Kosovo. And, you know, I'm not making that up. And stuff that Avatar Press would collect later. Given the option of, like, hey, you want to read, like, four issues of, a, of Voodoo? You know, Voodoo for Wildcats? Like, I don't care. I don't, <laughs> like, if it's your thing, please, please, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I like some stupid-ass comics and movies, too, but it holds no interest for me, and while I'm sure it's better than average, it, it's not like a secret gem. It's not like he took Swamp Thing and made it this next-level achievement from what it was. At its best, it's still, like... He's easily the best violator writer that the character has ever had. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's it's nice to think, uh, oh, well, Alan appreciated the punk spirit of Image. It's like, no, Alan appreciated the paycheck. Because it turns <laughs> out if you're not working for Marvel or DC, but you still, your only real training is in comics, you're going to have to write for somebody. Mm. <laughs> but uh, from there, that, if I may handle the segue... Because he is writing for some of the image dudes, he does end up falling in with uh, Wildstorm, and mm-hmm. this gives him the idea of like, okay, if I'm going to be technically writing for image anyways, could I do my own stuff? Yeah, Jeremy, take it away. Yes, that brings us to the beautiful experiment that is uh, America's Best Comics, which was not just a boast for a while. It was <laughs> it was America's best comics. Uh, there were several titles in uh, America's best comics. One of them was his anthology series because uh, he, he has a passion for anthology series. Um, it was called Tomorrow Stories. And there were several characters in Tomorrow Stories that got their uh, they got their time to shine. There was uh, Cobweb, which I believe was drawn by Melinda Gebby. Yeah. Cobweb is a very uh, salacious uh, type character. Uh, it was semi humorous. The humor is in a very burlesque type manner. You mean it's not funny? (laughs) Thank you. She, uh... Sorry. She, you know, has a very diaphanous costume. She has her, uh, fetishized chauffeur, sidekick Clarice. Better than a friend. Yeah. And, uh, the humor... Is very much, you know, uh, oh, I'm spilling out of my costume. You know, it's it's a it's a type of humor that uh, I was thinking earlier today is very popular in Japan. That uh, Rumiko Takahashi did a lot of like ver- a very kind of naughty type humor. I believe 
the word for it over there is furikuri. Um, but that's yeah, it's, 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 I believe it's very popular over there. Um, but it's probably pretty popular anywhere. I mean, yeah. like, look at like Carry On films. Look at what they can get away with in European commercials. Like yeah. And that's what you find a point on it, but it, it, it's just... Sex sells. It's the scene in, at the beginning of Top Secret where the girl's lying on the beach and, like, she looks up and there's two divots in the sand underneath her. Yeah. Like, sorry, but that's kind of universal, <laughs> for better or worse. Then there was uh, First American and U.S. Angel, which was... I'm going to say my favorite because... Uh, I, th- I think I'll go... With you on that one. First American and U.S. Angel was a, uh, your standard patriotic hero and his, uh, sidekick. Only, uh, he is, among other things, a dullard, uh, violent tempered, uh, they imply has pedophilic. Yeah, tendencies like, like, like very heavily implied. Uh, U.S. Angel does not want to, does not like him or want to be around him, and uh, people do not like him. Like the general populace does not like him, uh, and he has a wonderful rogues gallery featuring a retro obsessed villain called Dozier D. Days. Uh, we have Fatwa Arbuckle, the Guzlan Muslim. <laughs> I love it. I love and, it. It's the best ever. Yeah, best thing ever. And Fatwa Arbuckle. <laughs> I knew that was coming, and it still makes me smile. And uh, a evil opera singer named Gerda Damerung, yeah. which I always thought was a really cute play on words. Uh, they are, needless to say, better morally than First American, mm-hmm. and it's it's a hoot to read those stories. It really is. Um, well, they are uh, pretty hilarious. Like, there's such loose continuity. He just sort of does whatever he wants to with them. Mm-hmm. So one, it's a straight-up movie parody. One, it's semi-authentic. One, it's like behind the scenes of these characters. Um, but it's it could not be mistaken for something like The Tick, where or, or even The Venture Brothers, where fundamentally the creators have a fondness for this. It, it's so mean-spirited and so dark. There's like a, there's a story where First American gets like paralyzed by a bomb, and you I'm sorry, a U.S. Angel does. So first American just like marries her and does whatever he wants. You're like, oh, this is basically tantamount to rape. But and then there's one where like she's talking and too much and he like hauls off and hits her, which is not like hitting her is not funny. Him being that much of a piece of shit is funny. The yeah. like, like it's not meant to be this, this affable rogue, this lovable Homer Simpson long. No, he's just, a complete garbage no, person. It's just like if you've seen Heavy Metal, the the old movie, it Captain Stern but stupider. Yeah, <laughs> is basically a first American, and just like possibly, I said, leaving out like Anton Arcane and those guys. 
probably the least likable character that he's ever created outside of the actual villains. Um, and it's it's so unchecked. It's just like an R-rated Mad Magazine, or at least like a hard PG-13, I suppose. And it's one of those moments that makes you realize or remember, like, oh, Alan's funny as shit when he yes. wants to be. Not, not like wry or witty. Like, if he wanted to just be, like, a balls-out funny writer, like, who's funny, Rob Walton? <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, he could absolutely be it. I'll, just, I'll shut up, but I'll mention my favorite joke when they have uh, the Archie and Jughead stand-ins for no reason. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a, the Riverdale uh, pastiches. And it's like, hey there, fuckhead. It's like, hey, Archie, I've got a joke for you. Why is it possible to starve at the beach? Because of all the sandwiches. Sandwiches. There. <laughs> he falls on his chair laughing. And it's just a panel of Archie looking at him on the floor with contempt going, Jesus Christ. <laughs> that is like the funniest. <laughs> I'm sorry, what's the line with Laura Croft? She has a finishing move where you can see hair. <laughs> yeah, God. Like, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I feel bad even mentioning that. It's like so trashy and awful, but unapologetically funny, I think. And so it's, I, I don't know, it's a hidden gem, I would say. Mm. Yeah. The next uh, character that we have in Tomorrow's Stories is Gray Shirt, which is his ode to the spirit, Will Eisner's the spirit. He's called Gray Shirt because uh, as protection he wears a chainmail bodysuit. The, the costume is really cool. He has, uh, it looks like a million bucks. He looks awesome. Uh, he's, he's a slightly more dandified version of the spirit, but mm -hmm. he's, he's the kind of hero that looks like he could tap dance. So I'm, yeah. I'm down for that. He much much like the spirit. He really takes a beating. It's it's one of those things where like you, you don't you don't go an issue without getting a wrench to the head. Like I always yeah. I always enjoyed that how the spirit would just get the shit kicked out of him all the time. Mm. So yeah, I think gray shirts meant to to follow on from that. Mm. And they're very interesting noir stories. Mm. Uh. Never really phantasmagorical, just just noir, but good noir. Mm -hmm. Then we have a uh, very charming. Uh, the next one, uh, Jack Be Quick, boy genius. Mm -hmm. uh, Jack Be Quick. He, he's interesting personality wise because. I think he thinks he's doing good with his inventions, but they cause so much chaos that they routinely destroy the town that he lives in, Queer, Queer Water Creek, um, and his parents are basically driven to suicide at one point, yeah. like he's... <laughs> it's, you, you you never really find out if like he's a sociopath or he just doesn't understand what he's doing. It's like he always thinks he's helping and he, like everything is in the name of science. 
so he doesn't generally slow down. And even when he does realize he's done something wrong, it's like, oh, well, back to the drawing board, blah, blah, blah. The, the parents are a good bit, though. Like, in the first issue or two, the first story or two, it's like, oh, no, not again, Jack. Like, remember when the cat gave birth to Cthulhu? Or, like, there's some joke like that. And then, like, towards the later issues, they're just in the background. It's like, sorry, Mom and Dad, I'm off on another experiment. And they're, like, putting a noose over the rafters. It's like, that's okay, Jack. You do whatever you want. Soon this will all be yours. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it's such a nice slow burn gag that they go from weariness to suicidal shame and exhaustion. <laughs> and the... I think it might be in the... They released a couple specials to wrap up the whole ABC thing. Uh, one of the last Jack B. Quick experiment, experiment stories is uh, fantastic, where he puts... It's a scarecrow with a speaker in a wheelbarrow, which then passes the Turing test, and they end up taking over the world because they are more eloquent and they're, like, tender lovers and things. So they just have, like, pre-recorded messages, so it, it's like, okay, we'll do the Turing test, we'll see if, like, old lady Jenkins can tell the difference, like, how are you today? It's like, well, you haven't asked me that in years, Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> so women start liking the wheelbarrow scarecrow robots more than their husbands. <laughs> and it's, it's like such a cheesy joke, but he runs so far with it. And then it shows he patents them out to like England and Japan and everywhere. <laughs> so, uh, if you're into Turing test jokes, it's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Then our last uh, Tomorrow Stories character was brought on rather late in the game. He was... It replaced Jack B. Quick, right? I I don't know if he did or not. No, I think it did because I think the others are more like straightforward pastiches and parodies. Jack is more conceptual. It's It's like hard to write because Alan had to actually come up with an experiment every issue or, or like a pun like if you butter the back of a cat it won't land on its back and it won't land on its feet so it'll just float forever mm -hmm. which is a funny idea but like to come up with one of those every single issue was a little taxing so I think he got sick of Jack B. Quick because it involved more work than the others so he just went for Splash Brannigan instead mm. Splash Brannigan is for me probably the weakest it is a, uh, it's a plastic man pastiche. Mm -hmm. He is made out of ink. He is a cartoonist inkwell come alive. It's a nice touch, by the way, because it's yeah. not what they do with, like, Bosco and those old idiots. Yeah. Uh, Coco, Bosco, all those. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, I'm now hungry. <laughs> um, wait, wait. Bosco? How'd you guess my ATM password? <laughs> Bosco, didn't he play Rufio? Okay, let's just keep doing this. <laughs> let's just riff for a while. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the... Uh, it was just kind of... I didn't really enjoy it. Not to say that it wasn't interesting. Well, it's a huge ode to... Uh, you mentioned uh, Plastic Man, of course, which is like absolutely the primary inspiration for the character. The tone of the strip itself is like Harvey Kurtzman. Yeah. Because Alan is... He, he has said that Mad, Classic Mad Magazine is his favorite comic ever. 
So this, right down to the look, the the jokes uh, hidden in the background. There's one bit, there's a, like a Skyrider on his plane. It says like ABC for me, see? Which isn't funny, but it's a nod to EC for me, see? Yeah. From like a, from a million years ago. Stuff like Make Mine Marvel. Yeah. So um, it has its moments. There's one point where he, he gets his evil twin where uh, it's a white Splash Brannigan. Splash Brannigan's made of ink, so this guy's made out of whiteout. And then uh, they end up like getting into a fight and making peace, and the, the white guy's talking about, like, from now on we'll work together as a team, and Brannigan just like zaps him out of existence while his back is turned, which is a nicely callous move. And they say, like, wow, how did you know that would work, uh, Splash? And he goes, I just know one thing. Never bet on the white guy. <laughs> and, like, like it's, your mileage may vary, but there's there are a couple solid jokes somewhere in Splash Brand again. I think the main thing, like you say, because it was brought in as the replacement strip, it just never had much of a chance to establish itself. Yeah. There's there's only like half a dozen Splash Brannigan strips. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, so all of these are like you say they're pastiches. You have like the plastic man, the spirit, the sort of generalized like what if Cap and Bucky were pieces of shit. <laughs> Cobweb is the old uh diaphanously clad adventure heroines. And I feel like Cobweb is probably my least favorite of the lot. Uh, a, because I'm just a raging misogynist. <laughs> no, I don't think women should be superheroes. No, 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 I kid, I kid, of course. But the point of Cobweb was that it was the most experimental of the strips. So one issue would be done in, uh, like, fumetti, like photography with word balloons. One issue would be, uh, like, a space story. And whereas the continuity was loose with the others, uh, Cobweb it was non-existent. So it could just be Lil Cobweb one week, and then it could be like Cyberpunk Cobweb the next week. A week. These things came out like a year apart by the end of it. And in some cases that, that sounds liberating, but the character itself was rather boring. Like, it wasn't like an Elseworlds. Like, what would the Joker be like as a pirate? Because Cobweb was not an existing property, because she had no particular personality. It didn't matter what environs you put her in, because you, you weren't riffing on a theme if there was no theme to begin with, if you see what I mean. By contrast, I thought Grayshirt did a lot better, because he's not the deepest character, but he's likable, he has a cool design. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so... Alan would play around with the structure in those while keeping it fundamental, which is what Will Eisner would do. So there is a story that takes place entirely in a car's rearview mirror. There is one that is a musical. The Probably the most virtuosic of the whole thing, the apartment story, where it takes place on four different floors of an apartment yes. in four different decades, and you can read it three different ways, and it's not the best story ever because it's like more of a formal experiment. And that sounds like very Eisner. Yeah, but and when you read it, you're just like, good grief! Like the planning that must have went into this. Like mm -hmm. again, it's like you probably won't even like melt your heart or anything, but simply is it's like watching somebody like nail a triple backflip, you know? Yeah. Or you know, I did not know that you can do that on a pair of skates. Nicely done. Uh, 
But yeah, overall, Tomorrow Stories is everyone's least favorite of the ABC books. Uh, it's not actually mine, but it's far and away the least popular because it's an anthology. And like you said, Alan is a, like, he loves anthologies. He really wanted to bring anthologies back. And he, he was like, well, you know, Spider-Man first appeared in an anthology. Like, you ever think of that? Like, so did Batman. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, but not to sound snotty, that was a million years ago. Nobody reads anthologies. Nobody likes them. They're not a big thing. It's the same way that in the 60s and 50s, anthology television was super popular. Yeah. Twilight yeah. Zone, yeah. Outer Limits. Yeah. Uh, even getting beyond like the genre stuff, like Playhouse 90. Climax. Yeah. Whereas these days you have like Black Mirror. If it's if it's genre, you can kind of get away with it. And these days you just give it like the production value of a movie. What if you had to charge your mobile like you charged your yeah. mom? I got it backwards. American Horror Story is vaguely... Uh, but that's like per season. Yeah. Like even that's like something different. When you try to do a show where every episode is a different story, even if the stories are good, nobody cares. It's it's like uh, the Mad Men guy made that show for Amazon, uh, The Romanovs, mm-hmm. which is like a throwback to like, you know, 60s era uh, kind of prestigious uh, anthology dramas, and everybody hated it. Yeah. Uh, so, like, Tomorrow Stories is good for what it is, but it, but it is absolutely, to quote Ned Flanders, like, the answer to a question that nobody asked. Yeah. So... The nicest thing I can say about it is the stories are kind of cool, and he did it so that he could give uh, work to a lot of his uh, people who are not mainstream comic artists, mm-hmm. like Melinda Gabby and Jim Bakey, and uh, really even Rick Veitch. The fact that Rick Veitch is the most mainstream of these artists sort yeah. of tells you all you need to know. And it was a lot of guys that he had worked with in like his warrior days and things like that who... You know, where they were not Jim Lee, Joe Matarera level talents. So he was throwing them work. So I find it a noble comic. I just, uh, just not sure I, I like it all that much. But it's legit funny. So that, that has that going for him. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the next America's Best comic we will be getting into. We will not be discussing the entire run because that will take an episode in itself. But it's probably the most famous of the America's Best Comics because of the very lackluster movie, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is a ripping yarn about uh, Victorian England's greatest heroes and few villains uh, joining together to fight various threats. The core team is assembled by uh, Campion Bond, their liaison, who is, needless to say, James Bond's uh, ancestor. You know, it's they can't actually, because of Eon and yeah. United Artists, they can't actually make the connection outright, but it's pretty obvious. Yeah, they um, have the same physique and everything. Yeah. <laughs> Um, our heroes are Mina Murray, who is 
Mina from Dracula. She has survived the hellish experience of... They, they call him the foreigner. Like, they never come out and say Dracula. They call him, They say, like, she was ravaged by a foreigner. Yeah. Uh, the, or the old man. Uh, we have Captain Nemo, who is... Uh, they show him how he originally is the Sikh warrior pirate. Yeah. Uh, which I think is nice. He's not like James Mason or whoever played him. Yeah, which uh, even uh, Alan admitted like he, he wanted to include Nemo as a character, but I think it conceived him as like a sort of like a Victorian science warlord. And he admitted that it was only researching for the book that he discovered. Uh, and even then, it, it's it's a light reference, I think. It's only brought up... It might not even be until uh, the, the sequel, The Mysterious Island. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But it, it's brought up in passing, but he noticed that and he went, that's incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, that to, to have a Sikh ruling the seas... Uh, during the time of, uh, sorry, not India, uh, the UK's domination uh, is incredibly fertile, and so he absolutely leans into that. Mm -hmm. And the artist Kevin O'Neill beautifully illustrates uh, the Nautilus and Nemo's equipment. uh, Like, he does a fine job on all the League stuff, uh, certainly throughout these early miniseries, but he's tapping into something when he gets to do Nemo, and I mean everything from like the the clothing design to mm-hmm. the interior of the ship to the exterior of the ship to the steampunk gear he gives him. Like you can tell that he is just like soaring above the clouds when he gets to do anything Nemo related. Mm-hmm. Everything else looks cool, but it, it is. God tier when he's doing yeah. no designs. Uh, there is a former great white hunter adventurer uh, Alan Quatermain or Quatermain, how you want to pronounce his name. Quatermain. How, how uh, essentially what happens in the in the books is uh, in the actual. King Solomon's Minds, you know, H. Ryder Haggard's books, he ingests a hallucinogen called Taduki, and Alan thought, well, what if well, what if this ran out? You know, he would go to harder stuff, so he's essentially uh, an opium sod. Yeah, he, which is the theme you may already be noticing from all this. He finds the aspects of these characters that are not really the most famous, and then he pulls on those threads. So it's like when they, what is it, the 7% solution, when somebody really ran with the idea of, hey, you remember Sherlock Holmes was actually a coke addict? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the tone of the whole thing. What if, what if this went on? What if we followed this thread of the character? And the result is that somebody with, frankly, very little personality, like Mina, in the original Dracula novel, uh, is brought to the forefront here because by the time we get to like the third volume, like these these are not the original characters anymore. Yeah, as high as Mister Hyde says in one volume, you've seen things worse than me, which yeah. is a great line. Moving on to some of the other members, uh, we have 
Dr. Jekyll or Jekyll, however you want to pronounce it. It's, it's also well, pronounced Jekyll. Uh, and Mr. Hyde. Uh, if you if you read the original novel, you'll know that Mr. Hyde is actually smaller. He's since he's underdeveloped, he's this hunching, hideous creature. But ape-like. Ape-like, yes. But since uh, the power dynamic has shifted. Uh, Jekyll is wayfish and sickly, and Hyde is a hulking beast. He's actually he's actually the Rue Morgue murderer that in the original novel is the orangutan. And uh, lastly, we have Doctor Holly Griffin, uh, who is the Invisible Man, and he is he's somehow become more insane than he is in Wells' novel. He is a murderer, he has a violent temper, he is a rapist. Yeah, which again is uh, played off as a, a joke largely, and it's, I mean, okay, it's up to you if you find this funny or not, but it's certainly handled in a grotesquely, bleakly amusing way that uh, he's going to a prestigious Victorian girls school and going to the girls and impregnating them and they think it's the Holy Spirit visiting them which is a dark dark joke but it is a joke <laughs> one way or the mm -hmm. other uh, if nothing else it certainly tells you what you need to know about the character this guy who was like a troublemaking kind of murderer in the Wells novel uh it, yeah, here is just introduced as like, hey, what if he was raping a bunch of you know girls who are probably underage, even by the standards of the time? He's completely flipped his biscuit at this point. Yeah, I don't. That's the thing. I don't even know if he's meant to be like barking mad, insane. Uh, he, he just has no redeeming qualities. Mm -hmm. He's such a he's such an awful character. Uh, which makes him very fun to read about, but yeah, he's, he's also kind of a monster. Now, in the first uh, installment of League, the villains, there are actually two villains. Uh, there's Doctor the Devil Doctor, the Devil Doctor uh, Dr. Fu Manchu, who they cannot call Dr. Fu Manchu, they have to call him the Devil Doctor, the the Doctor of Limehouse, because for whatever reason, the estate of Saxe-Romer still owns the rights to Fu Manchu. I don't know if they somehow plan on making a well, remake. I like the time is ripe right Oh now. yeah, you know, people, people love representation like that. No, it, w it would be, like, so hilarious and timely. Like, you could call, like, the coronavirus the the flu man show. Wouldn't that be a clever play on words for an adult to make on television? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like the time is right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, flu man show is, like, that's such a weird character because he is a legitimately, like, threatening evil, stylish character. He, like, he's the sort of mastermind that you can kind of look up to. 
uh, he is cool and does have like a reputation and presence the way that say like Dracula does, mm-hmm. and at the same time so racist, and not even like not even the way that everything before a certain period is racist. You're like, oh well, we'll have to ignore certain aspects of this character. No, like specifically designed as a monstrous racial character. Mm. Uh, to the point, it, it's not like I'm not sure if that would fly in 2020. In the 1960s, they were going, "Ooh, I don't know if this character is." It feels like something out of a different time. Yeah, yeah. We have our other villain, uh, M, who turns out to be <laughs> Professor James Moriarty. Is racist against white guys. <laughs> yeah, they even say like, in the in the he and Manchu are actually battling for dominance they uh they say you know east versus west professor versus doctor uh i i have to pause and ask here does fu manchu have a uh terminal degree i'm sure he got one somewhere well it's it's one of those things where you're like where is dr doom's doctorate from because we know he left college yeah so. uh Yes, Moriarty is looking for Cavarite, which is, uh, what book is that from, the Cavarite? Oh, uh, the first man on the moon. Yes, the anti-gravity metal, which is much like Upsidasium from Rocky and Bowengle. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Moriarty meets his end the same way that the, the Mr. Big from Rocky and Bowengle does. Uh, grabs yeah. onto the uh, anti-magic stuff and just floats away. Just floats away. And then uh, we have the second series in which we... in which they have to fight the uh, the Martians from H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. They're, they're drawn beautifully, just grotesquely beautifully. Yeah, and it's it's a uh, an interesting touch because Moore makes the case that they are not Martian because the entire first issue of Volume Two, uh, one sixth of the whole story, does not involve the League. It takes place on Mars, and it's you can tell this is when he's already starting to like, you, you know, stretch a little bit. He's realizing what he can do, so it features like John Carter and. Uh, uh, Kane of old Mars and all these the Tharks yeah the Tharks like all the all the Martian heroes and they refer to the the squid blobs the tripod guys as like the bugs the parasites the invaders the suggestion is that uh, they are from somewhere even more distant and they've simply been like colonizing planets it just so happens that they came here from Mars but that's a bit like saying, like, oh, this Englishman went to China from India. That doesn't mm-hmm. make him Indian. It just means that he's going around all the places that he monstrously invaded and conquered. Yeah. Uh, the We have a lots of infighting between the characters. It turns out they're all evil. <laughs> yeah, it turns out they're all evil. We have a love scene between Mina and Alan. We have a violent rape between uh, Mr. Hyde and Dr. Griffin. Uh, which is interesting because people have said that there's a lot of rapes in uh, Alan's stories. Not inaccurately. Not inaccurately. Uh, 
it happened, and it happens to men as often as it happens to women. If you well, not as often, but you certainly see instances of both, like Kid Miracle Man, yeah. Tom Strong twice. And oh yeah, oh god, I forgot about that. <laughs> okay, uh, how did I forget the Tom Strong thing? Um, but yeah, it's this amazing scene where after. The Invisible Man has become a turncoat, is siding with the Martians. He uh, beats up Mina at one point in a scene that's you know, kind of hard to read. And then it's established in the first book that Hyde has a predator vision. Yeah. Like he, he sees with his nose or something. He's such an animal, he sees in heat vision. And it's monstrous, but it's maybe the best scene in the series. Like he goes back to their little haunts near Parliament, and he sits down with a newspaper, and he just goes like, oh, this is so hilarious, you think that I can't see you, don't you? And you just see the outline of the Invisible Man. He says, Griffin, I've always been able to see you. And he goes, that's not fair. <laughs> Which I, I love that so, like, his one advantage that keeps him just being like a skinny, useless British twit mm -hmm. is that you can't see him. And the response is not realize. I mean, he knows like what he's in store for, but his, his knee-jerk reaction is, "You're not playing fair." Yeah. And then we get the amazing scene: Nemo, their coachman, whoever's not off on a mission, show up for dinner, and you see Hyde's chest and the tablecloth and parts of the room suddenly become ensanguinated and bloody, and the revelation is that. Uh, Griffin just died in the other room, so suddenly all of his blood is becoming visible here as well. And Nemo goes in the other room to see what he did to Griffin, and then runs back in and tries to kill Hyde and says, I will not allow this abomination to... I will not suffer this abomination to live for one more moment. So again, we're talking about, like, super war criminal Nemo. It has seen something, like, he c cannot tolerate existing. Mm. So it goes with the, like, the, like, 1984, like, what's in room 13? What does Hyde do to uh, Griffin? Just picture the worst thing in the world. Like, well, whatever you thought of, it's worse than that, which is a cheating way of writing, but also a fun one, I think. Mm. And uh, the, the horror is not what he does to Griffin, but that it apparently took him that long to die. Yeah. Makes it even worse somehow. And, uh... They find out that uh, the League, who are left of the League, uh, which is essentially just Alan and Mina, um, Nemo's getting sick of all this. Well, this is one of the most not great moments of writing, I think, in Alan's later career. Because the issue is so packed, like issue six, uh, they wrap everything up. They find out that they use germ warfare to kill not just the Martians, but most of the people in that area of London. The germ, which is created by Dr. Alphonse Moreau. Yeah, so Nemo uh, says, uh, my God, I never suspected that you would do this. I am leaving. Never seek me out again. And he, he storms off in one panel, and that's it. And it is... I know they got an issue to wrap up, but if they had simply done, like, well, Nemo, what do you think? Will you help us on another one of our escapades? I have to go now. My mysterious island needs me. 
paddle lifts up. Nemo died on the way back to his own mysterious island. Yeah. It's it's about that subtly handled. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's basically how it ends, uh, a terrible infectious disease is unleashed on the world, and that's what I love about comic books, you have such phantasmagorical, uh, unrealistic stuff like that happening. Oh, I get it. Okay. I expected that I would get a better laugh. I was uh, checking my water. So, um, uh, what else? Do we want to talk about the Black Dossier, or just we will talk about League in a later episode. Uh, right now, we're going to move on to another uh, America's Best comic, Tom Strong, which is uh, his Doc Savage pastiche, mm-hmm. which is. It's it's not terrible and it's not great. It gets a little boring. You know, there are interesting characters like Paul. I, I believe the character's name is Paul Savine. The kind of yeah uh, looks like the guy on that one Movitz album cover. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, Savine is the probably the coolest thing in the series. Just this old-timey serial villain who, like you say, he looks like Phantomas or something. Back then, to be a villain, all you needed was a tuxedo and a domino mask. Looks a bit like um, Malak the Mystic from... Yeah, there uh, you go. Watchmen. And he's like a dapper, cerebral sort of villain who is dead by the time this series starts because Tom Strong is like 100, so... Uh, he has, like, this rich history, supposedly. And one of the better backup stories, I don't even know if it's by Moore, it might have been by Leia, or, uh, like, a guest writer, but they explain how uh, Savine died. He's, like, looking for the Fountain of Youth or, like, some temple in the middle of the desert, and he crashes his Jeep. And it's it's a short story, it's, like, eight pages, but it's him dying in the middle of the desert, unknown, unmourned, and unlocated by anybody going... Like, wait, this isn't possible. I'm Paul Savine. Like, he should die in battle or get electrocuted by his death ray or things like that. And instead, he dies stupidly and unnoticed due to poor planning. And then I think it pans down and it shows what he hit. Like, the rock he hit was the top of a temple that he was looking for. So it's like the from dusk till dawn ending. Mm -hmm. So... It's got its moments. It's got stuff like that. What, Newman, the pneumatic uh, robot? Yeah. There's a cool guest issue from Brian K. Vaughn where Newman thinks, like, oh, like, if I'm meant to protect the Strong family, if I kill them, then no one will be able to hurt them. And then he thinks better of it. But I, I don't know. Like, you're into Doc Savage. I'm not. Did, did you want to say anything about this character? Not really. Uh... Like, he he drinks he imbibes this stuff called a galuka, which it is, makes you a galoot. Which is fun to say, just like Tadooki. Yeah. Um, like he makes it into pills and milkshakes, and like he bakes it into cookies. Like does any that I always found interesting. Yeah. It's kind of it's CBD. It's CBD basically. Well, that he makes a horrible mistake though because it renders uh, Daniel Plainview immortal. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, Tom Strong, I, I think, because he had his own spinoff comic, too. Mm-hmm. After he wrapped up Tomorrow's Stories, they did this series, uh, Tom Strong's Terrific Tales, which, uh, God, even saying that is it's hard to say and it's hard to think about. Um, the result is that there's like a dozen issues of Tomorrow's Stories, a dozen of League, there's like a special or two in there. There's something like 40 or 50 Tom Strong comics. Yeah. It, it's like far and away the most successful. I think they even did a few sequels when it, it like ABC folded. I think Vertigo did a couple. It is by far the most uh, prolific and pervasive of the comics. Uh, easily my least favorite, I would say. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I already... I don't think Doc Savage is that interesting of a character. So, you know, that might be catnip for you, Jeremy, but, like, I... Like, I don't even like the originals, so I don't care about seeing a pastiche of it. There's nice touches. Like, he, he has, like, an interracial family, which is, you know, cool. And this, this comic isn't from, like, the 60s or anything, but still, it was fairly white bread in, like, 1998 comics, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has it has a couple decent villains. There's a primordial ooze that appears as Solieri. Like, he, it's almost like he can't keep some of his better ideas from bubbling to the surface, but... It's just dumb. It, it's like, we have to stop the giant space ants. Yeah. And it's like, don't worry. If I fail, I'll get help from my newsboy commandos, led by their leader, Golly G. Willikers. And are we going to talk about Top Ten after this? Yes. Okay, in that case, I'll put it this way. Um, Alan writes these things like, Miracle Man and Watchmen, which are exceptional for their time, but he ends up coming to regret them because they they get copied too much. Like when Miracle Man appears, like what if Superman was a was a monster? It's interesting. And then twenty years later, when every character is like that, like Supreme is a murderer and Sentry is a murderer, and Superman himself is occasionally a murderer. And Apollo is a murderer. Yeah, it, it's like. Well, who cares? It's not fun anymore, now, is it? It's like if I did got your nose and I actually had your nose, like, it wouldn't be very funny after a while. Same thing with Watchmen, when every comic from, like, 1990 to 2018 is, like, ripping off Watchmen, you understand, like, the work itself is good, but that trend towards, like, guys, guys, what if Prankster is a rapist from now on? Like, becomes so tedious. I understand, like, more falling out of love with that approach. But the bummer is that he goes too far in the other direction. And like I said earlier with 1963, I, I don't like that stuff. When he does, like, Tom Strong and Supreme and 1963, and it's like, Oh, come here, Supreme Girl. I'm in my layer of laxitude. Oh no, we, we're talking to Supreme House from the uh, the cartoon dimension. Isn't this cool? Isn't it like reading a not very good comic from 1957? <laughs> he errs too far in the other direction, where it's like instead of being light all the time, I'll be instead of being dark all the time, I'll be light all the time. Well, both of those actually sound really boring and monotonous. It's the reason I ask about top ten is because that's where he hits the sweet spot. That is, it's a delightful yeah. series. What if I had a comic 
that has the maturity of something like Watchmen. It's not silly, stupid, like, I'm going to write this like I was writing a coloring book. And at the same time, it is not ridiculous, stupid, grimdark. It's actually quite funny most of the time. Mm-hmm. It, it is the the perfect halfway point between, you know, uh, like Tom Strong and like Bunny Tom Strong team up to defeat the magical Merlin of Malice. And then on the other side, Joker possibly like uh, raping a uh, Batgirl. Yeah. It's the exact sweet spot between there. It does have some sexual violence in there, but even that's handled in an interesting way. Um, top 10 fucking rules. Like, yeah. I, I've, I've come to love that series so much, and it's one that I would actually go back and read for fun, I think. The basic idea of that is a city full of superheroes. Even civilians are superheroes. You know, there's... Yeah. Your pizza delivery guy has super speed. Yeah, there's uh, cyborgs, there's aliens, there's robots, there's mutants. Norse gods. Norse gods. There's just everything. It's so imaginative. It's a wonderful comic. My favorite character is uh, the, I don't know if he's the police chief, but he's a dog in a kind of a Terminator costume, like a mech suit. Yeah. A human-sized mech suit, and he wears like Hawaiian shirts and Bermuda shorts. He dresses like a parrot head. Yeah, it's I love it, and he's like a dachshund that can talk. Yeah, he's uh he's not a dachshund, but I know what you mean. He's he's like this shrimpy little dog, but it fools you because you see a dog head coming out of a robot body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a, a lieutenant. Yeah, uh, Kemlo Caesar, and. I mean, we we really could do an episode just on Top Ten, but it's just absolutely wonderful, and uh, Alan made a good point. Uh, I I don't remember if it was him or somebody talking about the book, but they said, you know Top Ten is good because you never refer to the characters by their powers. Yeah. So when you mention Smacks, you go, oh yeah, Smacks, he's a real asshole. It's not Smacks, the strong guy who can shoot a laser out of his chest. Uh, you think of like, uh, you know, this character is, is like, oh, she's the smart aleck, not she can phase through things. Mm-hmm. And uh, the characters are just, they, they are really fun. Like, Smacks is an asshole, but you find out why and he becomes a little more sympathetic. Um, so you have him, like, Caesar is, yeah, he's the lieutenant, he's kind of like a wiseacre, he's intelligent, he's also a horn dog. Yeah. Like, he, he's, <laughs> he's like a player in a way that is honestly, like, kind of shitty and kind of stupid. And, like, one of the women, he, he can, like, see through her costume, so she's nude all the time. And he tells her, like, he's like, sweetie, I, I'm a dog, like, I'm not attracted to you. And later on, he's talking to his buddies. He's like, yeah, yeah, I told her I didn't like how she looked. So he's like a mostly likable character with a shitty personality flaw. You have like Dust Devil, the cyber cowboy, who's just the nicest guy in the world. Mm-hmm. That's his personality. And then he's partnered with Shockheaded Peter, which is a terrific reference, who is uh, like the electric guy. And he's just like David Caruso. He's He has like electric powers, which are kind of useful. 
but he's like a piece of shit, mildly racist. He's the guy who would maybe help himself to some contraband here or there. Yeah. And the the jumping off point, uh, Alan said, like, he would read superhero team books and wonder why they never worked. Which is true. Like, why would you ever want to read Justice League, Batman? We could just go read Batman solo. And so he said, like, the team stories that do work are cop shows. So he wanted to just do The Wire, but it's superheroes. Mm-hmm. Which is honestly not the worst premise in the world. And yeah. you get the yeah, these terrific standalone stories. There's one where it's a murder mystery for the death of Balder, who then resurrects by the end of the story. You have the really touching one about the, uh, the cosmic chessmen, which is... The, I won't give it away, but the ending was good enough that they just straight up stole it for True Detective Season 1. Um, all this, and it, it looks good, and it's loaded with references. So, yes. Yeah, if you see, like, three hookers on a street corner, it will be, like, Lady Death, Danger Girl, and Red Monica. If you see, like, the Roman dimension that they visit, Asterix and Obelix will be sitting in the... Yeah. Like, it is... It's like an Alex Ross book. It's just you can't... You can read it so many times and pick up so much yeah. stuff. And there's like there's just this incredible where, where this was a period. I'll put it this way: this was around the same time like Authority and Planetary were coming out, mm-hmm. and it's almost you can almost see like a sliding scale there where Authority kind of sucks because it's just what if the Justice League murdered people? Yeah, like the characters are boring. Like Midnighter is just Batman, but he murders people. Apollo is Superman, but he murders people. The Hawksmoor is kind of cool, but other than that, they're all just boring ass knockoffs of like, like, ha ha, mate, two fingered salute. Mm. I don't just beat bad guys; I rape them. And then, so Authority sucks. Planetary is a little bit, uh, a lot better, but Planetary is explicitly like a reference. So everything in Planetary is like, this is a John Woo film. This is the Fantastic Four. These are kaiju. Yeah, these are kaiju. This is the Lone Ranger. It is meant to be an excavation of pop culture. Whereas Top Ten doesn't do that. It has like loads and loads of references, but it's not ripping anything off. Mm -hmm. The original characters are actually super fun and creative and original. And then it just so happens that like Nightcrawler will be sitting at a bar somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and then from there, like it gets great sequels too, like Smacks, which is Alan showing that he clearly is not a fan of fantasy novels um, in a really fun way, and the Forty ers which is his prequel series. So mm-hmm. yeah, like I, I don't know, we can talk about that ad nauseum. So I better stop. But yeah, top ten is everything. I feel like even when Alan's good, sometimes the works labor under their own motivation. Like, they, they have, like, a thesis that he needs to communicate to you. Top Ten is probably the most purely fun book he wrote since Swamp Thing, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This brings us to the last America's best comic, Promethea, which is, uh, to call it a Wonder Woman type thing would be unfair. Um... It is female-driven, but it's so much more than that. It's about a spirit, uh, a spirit of femininity and strength and motherhood. And creativity. And creativity. 
and she's this beautiful goddess who carries the caduceus, the thing that's on the back of ambulances, the thing you always see. Um, and well, she's a symbol of healing. Isn't yeah, it? <laughs> she has inhabited women, many different women since the beginning. She's inhabited a man once. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, she is inhabiting now a, a young girl, Sophie. And Sophie does not know how to use these powers. She doesn't know what the hell is happening to her. Uh, and she gets help from one of the older former Prometheus and uh, a very lecherous wizard. Um, I like the series, but it, it gets frustrating because there is a big part in the middle where they go into, like... I don't want to call it the Imaginarium because that's from something else, but it's basically an Imaginarium, like the the realm of thought and ideas and imagination, and it lasts for issue after issue after it's, issue. It, it's, it's a so while. Na- it's so navel-gazing, it's, it kind of bugged me, but it is a good series. Well... It has so much going for it. There are elements of it that are as good as anything you're likely to find. But you're right. It it stops being a story and becomes a lecture for basically the middle, at least the middle third of the comic. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's hard to know what to make of that. It, It is the point where, like, Alan's formalism, his experimentalism his desire to do these like extraordinarily Byzantine arrangements reached their absolute peak and it's just not that much fun to read. Whereas mm-hmm. Top Ten doesn't break any new rules, but it's it's fun as hell. Yeah. So it, it's one of those things where like I'm I'm not sure what to make of it in that sense. Uh, it has art by J.H. Williams. Mm-hmm. So it is one of the best looking comics you are ever going to encounter. Like he just he kills it every single month, every yeah. single time, uh, from layouts to designs to like borderline photorealism. Uh, it has some really nifty villains. I, I like the. It features a bunch of demons, which for Alan is like these dictionnaire infernal characters, like a de- so Asmodeus will appear and it will be a fat guy with a cat head, a frog head, and an old man's head riding on a spider. Like, a baby riding on a centaur will be a demon form. They base The demons that basically look like how uh, Renaissance demons look, yeah. where it's like a frog with four uh, legs coming out of it. Yeah. It's like something so bizarre. So, and it has uh, one character that's kind of memorable, uh, the painted doll. Who, when you find out what the painted doll is, it's actually a pretty decent reveal, so I won't spoil it. But the conception for the painted doll is, what if Joker just killed people? Like, he didn't try to copyright fish, or beat Riddler in a game of pawns, or anything like that. What if you had the Joker's basic aesthetic and personality, 
but he just killed people. And so it's, yeah, it's the uh, Joker if he was also a John Woo character. Mm -hmm. He comes in, shoots people up, though the one point is he wants to kill in the most novel ways. Now this sounds like kind of a shallow character, and it actually is, but as a character, there's not that much going on. As an entity within the realm of the book, he's actually put to some pretty interesting use. Um, it is not hurting for ideas. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's really incredible. But like you're absolutely right. It just turns into a lecture for like twelve issues, which means about two years if you were reading it when it came out. And Alan said at the time, like we, you know, we have like uh, four hundred comics that are. Uh, based on superheroes punching each other. Can we have one that's just about the Kabbalah? Which is kind of a decent argument, but at the same time, it makes you think, well, I don't really like the superhero ones either, so that doesn't mean I'm going to automatically like the Kabbalah one. Right? And, yeah, there's I think it's issue 12 or one of those where it's Promethea giving a lecture and taking you through the tarot and as this is happening, a character is telling a long Victorian joke at the bottom of the page, and there are Scrabble titles that endlessly turn into different, uh, not palindromes, but uh, they endlessly rearrange into different phrases. And it's such an absolute, like, so many spinning wheels, so many parts involved in this, uh, like this incredible technical flourish. And who cares? It doesn't have, like, a quote or a character or a joke or anything in it that I remember. So it's I don't know if you're if you're a formalist you're gonna love this everyone else uh, he I hold out for like an actual story sometime. Mm-hmm. Uh, After this, uh, there was basically the wild storm debacle with him and Jim Lee. Um, wild storm. Jim Lee basically said. Uh, I will never sell Wildstorm to DC. Yeah. And Alan Moore said, like, you promise? He said, yeah. It was like this big promise that Jim Lee made Alan Moore, and it was very important to Alan Moore. And Jim Lee sold Wildstorm to DC, and Alan was furious because that meant, because some of the books were unfinished, he technically had to write for DC again. Yeah, well, and this, but this doesn't come at the end of the ABC era. It's actually at the beginning. Like, I, I think from the get-go, like, uh, like Wildstorm was purchased before. I, I hope this is clear. Like, ABC, like the Alan Moore line, is part of Wildstorm, and then Wildstorm was just Jim Lee Comics. Right before it's going to launch, he sells it to DC as an imprint. So it's still, there's like a lot of stuff that's creator-owned. That's why Alan gets to keep doing, ironically, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where it's all borrowed characters. That was the one he actually owned himself. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also why all these books continue on for at least a little while after Alan leaves them. Except Promethea, because no one else wanted to mess with it. Um the result of all this, though, was, yeah, like you say, like, he had sworn never to work for DC, and now people were going, ha-ha, technically you're working for DC. And I think, to his credit, he realized, oh, well, the alternative is that I back out, which I'm a grown-up, I can do that. 
but it means that I just promised like a couple years work to about a dozen of my best friends. And uh, if I like, if I leave, it, there's not gonna be like an ABC without Alan Moore's name on it. Mm-hmm. So he's just tanking all of them with him, and he decided, okay, like this guy who's often principled to like an infuriating fault for some people, decided, okay, I'll break my word on that if it means keeping my word in a way that matters more. So, however, the result is that there's no real love lost there, and when he wraps up the stories, like. He does about, you know, however many issues of uh, Top Ten, however many of Tomorrow's stories. You could tell Prometheo was his baby. Like, mm-hmm. that's the one that he really wanted to finish all the way through. And when he does, he does that. He does the uh, the Black Dossier, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen collection, uh, which is, like, horribly delayed and is the last thing ever published by ABC. And then I think he just cheerfully walks away. Yeah. Yeah. After, uh, I only want to talk about a few more things. We'll wrap this up soon. Um, there's the book Neonomicon, which is a horror story. Um, it's loosely inspired by the works of H.P. Lovecraft. We, we have. I'd say more than loosely. Yeah, we have. Sea-dwelling eldritch creatures. Um, it is fucking repulsive, in in my eyes. It's it, I I and I read. You know, he wanted to write a horror story, and the basic idea was you wanted something horrifying, and boy, did I give you something horrifying, <laughs> and I. I'm like, okay, I can't really argue with that, you, because this is awful, this is, like, get this away from me. Yeah, um, how, <laughs> not to dance around it, but I mean, do we, do we want to talk about that aspect of Alan's work, like, that, that criticism, or? Uh, not really. Okay, well, okay, it's no secret, like, Alan uh, has been accused, not without base, of including a lot of, uh, sexual violence in his works, which I think most people would allow that there that can be used. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, like rape is an origin story, like in, uh, say, uh, Lev Grossman's magician novels doesn't really do it for me. And at the same time, like there, there are stories like, you know, Titus Andronicus or something where, um, it can be used the same way that, like, murder is not off the table. <laughs> Genocide's not off the table. Like The Holocaust is not off yeah. the table. Look at Magneto. Like, it's... And and it's arguably, like, not the worst thing that could happen to somebody, like, compared to, again, just, just killing them. Uh, having said that, it's certainly not something you want to dwell on too much, and it's, it's not something you want to overuse either. <laughs> And the result is that uh, Alan, again, by all accounts, like, you know, a nice guy in real life, he does seem to go to that well pretty often. So Anton Arcane commits, uh, like, what is it, like, rape by deception when he poses yeah. as Abby's uh, husband. Incestuous rape by deception. Yeah, so you could point it out, like, okay, well, this, and Swamp Thing himself gets raped by a planet at one point. So off the top of my head, you'd say, like, okay, uh... Tom Strong includes it. Promethea might, I forget. Um, 
yeah, it's like Swamp Thing from Hell, uh, Miracle Man, League, League, uh, Watchmen, like, and it, it gets to a tricky place where it's like, in each instance, you can go, oh, well, that's motivated. Like, you're not supposed to like the comedian. Like, it was motivated by the story. Which is true in isolation, but then each one of these is motivated by the story, but there's still, like, 28 of them. <laughs> so I, I understand why people say, like, that's a lot, and why is that a motif, and why do we keep coming back to that? I'm not sure. Uh, and it's it will be up to individual taste how much of that you care to deal with or how much it detracts from the story, I suppose. Neonomicon is the worst. Yes. It's, again, like, we actually don't quite see anything, which it happens between issues, which almost makes it, like, worse that it's left up to the imagination. It, but a woman gets raped by a fish demon. Mm -hmm. And the aftermath of that, like, you, we hang out with them for about an issue afterwards. Like, it is the single most unpleasant thing that he has ever written and like you say Jeremy it's it, it like it's not horror where it's like oh no this handsomely dressed guy owns a castle where spooky things happen like that's not scary that's not horrific it's just gothic yeah this is Alan saying like no no I, I want horror that will make you feel bad after you read it because is that not what the genre is supposed to do um the thing is you mentioned Neonomicon uh he, the follow-up is Providence, which has a scene that is less, literally less monstrous, which is maybe even more disturbing in some ways. <laughs> um, I don't know, we're, like, we're not going to do this in the next five minutes, because I know we need to wrap it up, but the, the H.P. Lovecraft cycle, he starts off with The Courtyard, which is two issues, which is just like a good story, but is almost barely there. He expands it to Neonomicon, and then he expands it from there into Providence, which is, you know, Watchmen for Horror. And it is just Alan analyzing Lovecraft the same way that he, you know, Watchmen wants to analyze superheroics. Um, it's actually maybe one of the best things he's ever written, but it is a tough sell for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I can understand why, but I think I want to call the whole thing taken together, like the, the Lovecraft trilogy that he does is probably his last masterpiece in mm -hmm. comics, as far as I'm concerned. So. And it's interesting, he is actually uh, retired. Mm -hmm. And more interesting stuff, he voted in, he's a an admitted anarchist, he has, he voted recently in the British elections uh... He said it's the first time he's voted in 40 years, I believe. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he made a thing on Twitter where he he didn't film himself. His daughter filmed him, him saying, that, you know, I'm going to vote because we can't sit back idly and see the Tories win, something to that effect. Um, and interestingly, his daughter, Leia... Uh, wrote a very long Twitter thread about how, you know, he's not a grump, he's not a grouch, stop calling him that. Uh, it's just that the comics industry has basically broken him. Yeah. You know, I, I, 
knew a man who, you know, his eyes would widen when he saw Kirby comics from the 60s, and he would, you know, look at the new stands and buy them and love them and, like, love comics. And he, by the way, it's escalated, because uh, around 2003, it was, like, his 50th birthday, so there were a lot of celebrations. If you hop back to that, you can see him giving interviews where he says, like, uh, uh, well, I'm very proud of the work I did with Watchmen, but I, I also feel like anything that needs to be said about it has been said about it. And uh, the less said of my work with DC, the better. Like, he takes that tone. If you look at that one from, like, just two years ago where he, he calls, like, uh, Birth of a Nation the first uh, superhero movie, if you read that, like, he, he will not even talk about stuff anymore. Mm. So the interviewer, like, he's not even being a dick, but the interviewer brings up V for Vendetta. He says, he says, like, well, I have nothing but bad memories attached to these, and I am unable to make any uh, profit off of them. And they have actually led to hardship and even the disillusionment of several friendships. So much in the fashion that one would not wish to discuss uh, a marriage that fell apart. I have nothing to say about any of my work from this period. And it, like, it, like he's he's gone completely from like, oh, yeesh, don't bring that up. To hey, seriously, don't bring that up. Yeah. So it's just yeah that that gate is closed at this point. And Leia's uh, Twitter thread was very I it was heartfelt beautiful. and passionate yeah. and beautiful. And I actually, uh, I copied this down. I wrote something to her on Twitter, and she liked it. Like, pressed light. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote... a little like button. Yeah. I wrote a... Thanks for saying this in the thread. It has always bugged me to hell the way people refer to and treat your pops. I wouldn't be the artist or the man I am today if it wasn't for your father's work. He's deeply inspired me to try harder in my work and stand up to forces bigger than me. Kudos to the both of you. I am an American and I will be voting wisely in our election in 2020. I believe your father's work has made a difference, and with any luck, his vote can. Thank you and good night. Mm -hmm. And I'm very proud of myself that I wrote that to her, and I'm very happy that she liked it. Yeah. Um, I mean, if we may talk about that for a moment, like the fact that Alan's clout, I guess, his reputation has like gone so far south in just the last few years even... Like, I don't really know what to make of that. It, it astonishes me. Like, it's not that the guy... Look, the guy's written, like, some shitty comics. You know, like, morally shitty, artistically shitty. He's not beyond reproach or criticism. Like, I, I don't mean to say any of that. Like, he's an artist just like anybody else. But, um, first of all, by all accounts, he's, like, the nicest guy. Mm -hmm. Like, if, you, if you're doing... If you're not actively, like, ripping him off... All of his friends just say, like, oh, yeah, he's, he's hilarious, he's affable, he's a good dad, <laughs> like, just this really cool guy that you'd like to know. Uh, even putting that aside, though, like, everybody rips this guy off. You rip this guy off without even realizing it. Like, we, we would not have comics, most of pop culture as we have it these days, would not exist as it does without his influence. And because he's been relentlessly abused and ripped off by, like, the publishers and the suits and everybody else, 
and decide to stand up to them, uh, you would think that would earn him some clout, and instead it's done the opposite. Yeah. Exactly. Where, for instance, the, the business with Watchmen, where he does not own stake in Watchmen, the deal was that uh, the rights to Watchmen would revert to he and Dave Gibbons uh, once the book went out of print. And instead, DC put it in print as a trade paperback and has never let it fall out of print since then for precisely that reason. Yeah. And the result is it's like, oh, okay, like legally that's fine, but how is he to know this thing that you you didn't do? Like trade paperbacks didn't exist in that sense in 1985 for comics. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't forward thinking enough. And because of that, he's lost his... uh, it, like any claim to the the work he might have, and then same thing with the like V for Vendetta, where it's like, hey, we we called Alan Moore and got his blessing. It's like, no, no, you didn't. Why would you lie? Why would you say that? With the new Watchmen HBO series, where it's like, look, I don't care. I don't have any right to the work. The one thing I would ask is just please don't bring me up in connection with. Just don't say my name. Is that asking too much? And then apparently it was because for the whole year leading up to it, Damon Lindelof was like, "Wow, we maybe Alan Moore actually did curse me." Like, mm-hmm. I feel like you know, Alan's a punk. I think he actually appreciate me like fucking him over like this, you know? Like in a way, like working for a huge corporation, like giving an assignment they gave me. That's kind of the most punk thing there is when you think about it. Yeah, like this whole. Like, hey, hey, everything like settling down in the suburbs and like get, becoming an ad executive is actually being super punk because you're taking money from corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so like they they can't even like leave his name out of it. They won't even extend that courtesy. And after all this, the fact that he is as bitter as he is, as opposed to more bitter, is just incredible. And then what what I find amazing though is that the fans are totally on the side of, like, say, Warner Brothers in DC. Yeah. Which is so strange which to me. Which is like, so depressing. Like, like that's maybe it was just how I grew up or something, but I, if you told me that story, I'd go like, wow, that guy sounds awesome. Man, screw these big corporations. They can go to hell. And it's really stupid of them anyways, because... Alan's this, Alan is this golden goose that would have just kept giving you stories for the next 50 years. And instead they go, if we kill the goose, we can get all the eggs at once. <laughs> I think I made that joke last time. I don't care. Mm. But, but the result of all of that is that he's probably way less bitter than he has any right to be. But I, I don't know. I'm not mad at the corporations for doing what they do. Like The fan reaction is so disappointing. Because you explain this, you explain how this contract screwed him over. And I would think anybody in their right mind would go, wow, that poor guy, that sucks. Even if they went ahead and watched the show, they'd go, oh, well, that's kind of shitty. But instead you say that, and about, what, three quarters of the people on, like, the AV club or whatever are going like, oh, yeah, you're such a great writer. Maybe learn to read a contract once in a while, jackass. Hmm. And it's like, Alan says he's not into superheroes. You know what? Shut the hell up and let us enjoy our thing. Yeah. And it's, it's disgusting. Yeah. And you get, and even that, it's like, wow, you, you know, kind of uh, ironic that he asked people not to use his characters. But meanwhile, Leave Extraordinary Gentleman is nothing but borrowed characters. It's like, 
Yeah, the difference is that Elmore's not dead. That his characters aren't public domain. Like if Watchmen he hasn't been, been written, dead for a hundred years. If Watchmen had been written in like the seventeen hundreds, and Rorschach was now like a free use character, like Iago and Hamlet, then okay, fine, that would be one thing. But he's still very much alive, like asking you not to do it, or at least to leave him alone, and you won't even do that. Here's the thing: if Arthur Conan Doyle was very long lived and was still around, and went to Alan Moore and said. Hey, uh, please don't use Sherlock at Holmes in uh, the next issue of League. Alan Moore wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Whenever he includes living characters from living authors, living characters, living authors like Michael Moorcock and like Ian Anderson, uh, if I'm getting whatever the guy's name is, I'm going to get wrong. Uh, he always asks their permission. He always like runs it by them. Mm-hmm. And if people ask him not to do something, he doesn't do it. So it's not exactly a one-to-one correlation there, is it? Yeah. Anyways, I could easily do another two hours on, like, what the hell is wrong with you people. But, yeah, I just just find it astounding, like, how utterly, like, fans have gone the full, like, huh, do I side with the people who created the things I like? Or do I side with uh, this weird streaming service that doesn't care if I live or die? The answer's obvious. Weird streaming service. Mm. Yeah. Anyways, I'll shut up. But you know, gotta get that off my chest. I guess. I understand. Uh, I don't. That uh, we'll have to. Uh, we'll have to wrap it up here. Um, this has been a very interesting conversation. Very interesting. Very long. <laughs> very, long far, very interesting. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad we could cover what we'll cover. There will be a third. Uh, chapter to this Alan Moore thing which would be kind of a surprise uh, next month but uh, it, if it's what I think it is like um, you have fun <laughs> uh, I would like to thank my guest Nathaniel hi uh, where can we find you? Uh, oh, I'm at uh, the Pretendium Compendium a podcast broadly about Dungeons and Dragons but we kind of just use it to talk about uh Fantasy in general, and just a kind of—it's not a nostalgia podcast, but just kind of a vibe of uh, science fantasy that we happen to grow up on from a certain period. And yeah, we talk about old media, and we also talk about uh, monsters. Are they good or not? Join us; we'll find out. <laughs> uh, people who are listening, you can find my YouTube channel at Ringo Phonebonius Jones. It's spelt the same way that it is written on my SoundCloud uh, page, and has the same icon. Uh, uh, what? Uh, just, just it's Ringo Phonebonius Jones, not like Ringo Phonebonius Jones, like two thirteen eighty five or something. Like, no, it wasn't taken. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. Oh, okay. Um, please like and comment uh, if you would like to do so and well that's all I have to say hello if you can please give the charities for those disenfranchised in these still troubled times an example might be the Oprah project which helps black trans people with food shelter and other needs of life also support the Trevor project 
a mental health hotline for LGBTQ youths in trouble. Uh, as for Nathaniel, you can find him at the Pretendium Compendium, his own podcast, where he talks about Dungeons and Dragons and other fantasy fare. Uh, if you would like to see more of me, you can find me on my YouTube channel, Jeans, which is J-E-E-M-S. You can find me on my Tumblr, which is also Jeans, my TikTok, Jeans84, my Twitter, the show's Twitter is at Penny Tolerable, and I'm at MyPlanetIsJ, and you can find me on my Instagram, at, at my planet is journey. Uh, we are available on Anchor, SoundCloud, Spotify, and several other podcast platforms. Now, on with the show. <laughs>